Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Martha Shockey of the grassroots political action group Indivisible Georgia. A soft-spoken powerhouse, Martha talks about all the hard work that groups like hers put into Biden's win in the state and what they're doing for the two Senate runoffs on January 5th. We discuss the tremendous hurdles created by the Republicans' sophisticated voter suppression tactics, how she and others are working to rebuild the Democratic infrastructure in a state that national Democrats had written off, and why it's important for all of us to do what we can to help get out the vote in the runoffs. If you'd like to donate to her organization to help them get out the vote, there's a link in the podcast notes. Any amount makes a difference. And if you want a phone bank or write postcards, there are links for those too. And now here's my conversation with Martha Shockey. Martha Shockey, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Glad to be here. So Martha, let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. What's your day job and what's your activist job? So I am a native Georgian, which is these days a little unusual in the metro Atlanta area. I grew up in Columbus. During the day, I am a mild-mannered educational professional. I do donor engagement and some communications for the college where I work. During my activist life, I am one of the leaders of the Indivisible Movement in Georgia, I co-lead Indivisible Georgia 4 and work to steer the Indivisible Georgia Coalition. And we have approximately 40 active groups throughout the state. That's a lot. How many people total in Georgia are working on Indivisible? If you look at our Facebook pages, we have around 20,000 members. That's incredible. That's a big number. Well, so some people may not know what Indivisible is. I know a little bit. I know it famously started with a Google Doc right after the 2016 election, but maybe you can fill us in on that. Just after the 2016 election, the founders of Indivisible were sitting around trying to figure out what they were going to do. And they had been congressional staffers and been on the receiving end of the Tea Party. So they had a pretty good idea of how they functioned and what they did to kind of muck up the works in D.C. So they created the document that became the Indivisible Movement about holding your elected officials accountable and pushing back on policies that were harmful. So groups sprung up around the country at that time. I think there were around 6,000 that signed up. And it was an exhilarating response, I think to a really difficult situation. Everyone came to that work for their own reasons, I'm sure, but there's a collective sense of what Trump meant for our country and that we had to do something. And the majority of people who joined the Indivisible Movement had never been politically active before. So that was, there were plenty of opportunities for learning 
and for building the movement in various ways. And I had been politically active before, but the life of being an activist is not always easy. So that kind of set some of that aside when my children were born and I was raising children and working and all of that. Not that I didn't have some political interactions kind of just in my community and school boards and that sort of thing, but had not been actively involved in larger political movements for quite some time. So I knew what I was taking on <laughs> and was reluctant to do so, but really glad that I did and have been really proud of the work that we've done. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Tell me about your group, Georgia 4. What is 4 refers to the congressional district, is that right? That's right. So we started as a really small group of people who really didn't even know each other, which is unusual. Most of the groups, I think, started because of people had various connections. So we drew in people in our neighborhoods and through various online sources to try to pull together a group of people to respond to these things. We are in the 4th Congressional District. It is a blue district for the most part. There are some Republican legislators left in the 4th District, but not many. In the 4th District, a lot of the work that we started out doing was in defense of immigrants and refugees. We have Clarkston in our district, and Clarkston is a very, very small little town in the metro area. It's one square mile, I think, but it has more languages spoken there than just about anywhere else in the States, actually. It was a welcoming place for refugees and has remained so. So a lot of our work really focused around that after the Muslim ban in January of 2017. Yeah, that galvanized a lot of people early on. I don't know if Trump knew how effective he was at really getting people scared and involved right away. It's definitely for me. Exactly. So, and how many people are in Georgia for? We have around 500 members. That's a lot. And this is suburbs of Atlanta, right? Yes. Okay. So you started working on immigration and refugees and helping them. And what has it evolved to now? Like, what things have you been doing for the last four years? So we started out doing a lot of work around voter registration and working with voting rights groups to fill in the gaps on whatever efforts they had put forth. And then we began to canvas in our neighborhoods for the 2018 election. We also did some work around the special election in Congressional District 6. For John, John Ossoff. Yeah, and learned a lot. So during that time of working on that campaign, we learned a lot about our local Board of Elections. So we began to attend those Board of Election meetings. And as a matter of fact, this morning, here getting text messages from members who are attending that today. And it was enlightening. We also began to work with other indivisible groups in the metro area on the Georgia legislature, and that was enlightening. So really, and, and it was interesting to me to see that groups around the country were finding themselves in a very similar position, paying attention to local politics, to state politics, 
and what goes on and how that affects our national infrastructure and how we have maybe ignored too much of that and our lack of civic engagement in our own communities really, to me, led us very much to this place. We just were not paying attention. So you mentioned that, for instance, your county turned fully blue in 2018. And so 2018, there was the blue wave. How did that hit Georgia? Was it a big deal in Georgia? Did you see in 2018 evidence of what we're now experiencing in 2020, where things really look like they might be turning? As a native Georgian, first of all, I want to echo what Stacey Abrams says. We are not a red state. We are just blue and confused. (laughs) (laughs) And we also have been the victims of some really deep voter suppression tactics. So it's not that we turned red, but we were deeply affected by Newt Gingrich and his counter-revolution and the politics that followed after that. Voter suppression just has been the steady drumbeat of theirs ever since, and they exercise it with knife-like precision. It's really amazing to watch. Once you start looking at the figures and looking at the lines move and looking at the borders move when they're figuring out redistricting, which we're going into this year, of course, and the little laws that you don't think about at first, they don't look so ominous. But then when you begin to see what the impact is, it's huge. So just learning all of those kinds of things that, of course, communities of color have been dealing with for decades, and they could certainly see how they were being disenfranchised. But those of us who are white or middle class, or I would even say working class white people who aren't paying attention to how they're being disenfranchised. It was quite a learning curve, but we got the speed pretty quickly and learned the ropes. So let's talk about this year and specifically what your group did for the 2020 elections. So you said you do, I mean, it obviously was not just the presidential election, and I'm sure you were working on these Senate races that we will talk about shortly. Did you also work on other elections? I know there were congressional elections, obviously state elections. So we worked with Swing Left and sort of created our own little way of adopting districts and working on making sure that resources got out of the metro area into these other districts that had maybe even previously not had a candidate. We also worked in coalition with a number of groups to recruit candidates. So this year, we had more candidates running in Georgia since Roy Barnes was governor. It's been at least 20 years since we've had this many candidates. We helped recruit those folks and did what we could to support them. But of course, the other problem that we faced was that we really had been left kind of out here by ourselves. So there wasn't a lot of infrastructure. So a lot of what we've done, especially, again, in coalition with other groups and other organizations, is to try to build that infrastructure back up to support this. 
Are you talking about infrastructure like from the Democratic Party or? Yeah, from the Democratic Party and from other groups or organizations who fund. They just kind of wrote Georgia off. And I always say, people forget, we sent a president to the White House. A Democrat. That's right. (laughs) So it's not all Newt Gingrich. (laughs) That's right. No, it's not. And we had a real fine set of Democratic senators and representatives for years. But they took that one incident, I think, and there's prejudice about the Southeast. So there's that definitely fits into the mix. But we had great candidates out in South Georgia and North Georgia and West and East Georgia in places that just some areas probably hadn't had a Democrat run there in 30, 40 years. That's incredible. I actually did a podcast with a group who was doing that in Florida. They were specifically running candidates, Democrats, and races that had, hadn't been challenged in decades. And maybe you don't win those, but you start to build back, like you said, the infrastructure. Exactly. And the other thing that is quite obvious to me when I look at the numbers for this presidential race is that even in those districts where we didn't flip the district, the number of votes that we had in those districts were higher, I think, because we had candidates there who were engaging voters. Of course. So it's not just about the winning of the seat. It's about the organizing that happens while you're running a campaign. And that's something that we're going to be looking at for the future. So you guys went from a group that was, I remember what Indivisible was in the beginning, call your congressman and complain about this bill and tell them about that, what you think about that. You've gone from that to recruiting candidates, adopting counties, giving them support, creating infrastructure. I mean, you are like a one-stop shop for electing Democrats, it sounds like. Well, not alone. We're not in a vacuum at all, but we definitely, we found partners to work with, for sure. Yeah, I'm just, the evolution is so remarkable. It's pretty amazing. I mean, when we try to describe what we do to people, to new people coming into our group, it's just, you can almost see their eyes glaze over. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, I don't know that I want to do all that. Well, you don't have to do all that, but. (laughs) There's something for everyone. This is what we've accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) So you talked about Stacey Abrams and she's like a national hero at this point. And I'm certainly in Georgia on a giant pedestal. But you talked about a lot of other groups. I mean, who deserves some of the credit for what's been happening in that state? Well, of course, Fair Fight. Stacy's group, right? Stacy's group and her other group, New Georgia Project, who started really working diligently on registering voters of color at least a decade ago. And those kinds of things really just doing that work all the time makes a huge difference. And there are other groups in that area who do voter registration. But then there are groups who've been here for a long time, like Helen Butler of People's Agenda. There's Common Cause, who do nonpartisan work, but they do a lot of work in defending democracy and calling out corruption. On candidate recruitment, we work with Rep Georgia. And we have worked with the Democratic Caucus here to do that recruitment as well. 
There are other small groups around who, with whom we work. There's a women's group called No Safe Seats, Forward Together. There's some Pantsuit Nation groups. So it's really quite an array of people who do this work. Outside of Atlanta, Black Voters Matter is on the ground all the time. And they're out there really helping to build some of that civic infrastructure that had kind of floundered, I think, because there's just been no investment. So do you feel like the Democratic Party sort of, they had left a vacuum? I mean, they just weren't doing the job and you guys had to do it? or The National Party, yeah. I mean, the local party has been ready to do this work all along. It's not for a lack of desire or a lack of will, but I think they just didn't have the resources. I mean, what it looks like now with resources in the state, as opposed to what it looked like four years ago without resources in the state, is night and day. I can't even imagine. It's just amazing. So let's go over the wins in Georgia in November. So, of course, Biden, that was the top of all of our agendas. What else? Tell me what other notable races there were. The thing that I am most encouraged by are the number of seats that we flipped some sheriff's seats. I know that. That was high on our list because of 287G. And You want also, to tell people what 287, I know what it is, but. So 287G allows local law enforcement to detain immigrants, undocumented people, and hold them in the jail and turn them over to ICE. But they don't have to. It's not mandated that they do that. So. The one that I found most egregious was in Gwinnett County, just north of where I am, where the sheriff there was quite prodigious in his detaining of people. And I just kept thinking about, one, what a waste of resources that could go into schools and hospitals, public health, transportation, all of these county funds. And they just had handed him a blank check. So we also helped to lift up candidates for county commission. But they finally did flip that seat, and they did also in Cobb County. And those were two of the ones that we were most concerned about. And then you guys also, I think you had the only flip in the House of Representatives, right? It was Carolyn yes, Bordeaux. Yeah, Carolyn Bordeaux. And is, she's not your district. She's six. No, she's, she's seven. Seven, seven. sorry. That's okay. And one of our groups, Necessary Trouble, worked really hard on her campaign, and they worked hard on her campaign the previous cycle, which I think built the infrastructure for this one. And what we've seen in some of these stubborn districts is that it matters if you come back and run that second race, because then you have the name recognition and you have your entire landscape set up so that you don't have to start from scratch. It can take multiple cycles. It's not always easy. So, okay, you told me Georgia's not red. It's just blue and confused. After this election, would you say that it's trending purple in terms of election results? And as a follow-up question, does that mean that people's politics are moving more to the middle or that there are just more Democrats showing up to the polls and things are as polarized as ever? Or maybe a combination of those two things. Well, I think it is complicated. One, I think that the win 
energizes Democrats here. I think a lot of times people do not vote because they don't think we can win. They're just discouraged. And we have been worked on by experts. The disinformation machine in Georgia has been relentless for decades. It hasn't just started because of Russian troll farms. It's been going for quite a while. This cycle, we saw just an enormous blitz of disinformation and attack ads on all of our candidates, all down ballot, which has never really happened before. And it was really disconcerting and harmful, but we also lost a number of races that we should have won. So there's that. I think there's so many impediments to voting here. You have to have a certain kind of ID. You have to know where to go to vote early. You have to, and during the pandemic, it made it worse because so many polling locations that had previously been open had to close. Some of them would not open back up due to the pandemic and their own insurance policies or whatever. They wouldn't allow people in the building. So then local board of elections had to go find new polling locations. It was pretty chaotic, really. So much of what we did really was to help educate people about what they needed to know to vote, just to exercise their right. We developed a voter guide that is just sort of your citizen's voter guide in plain English, what you need to know about voting. And people can find that at georgiavoter.guide. And it is a nonpartisan guide. Anyone can go there and find answers. You can ask questions. We have several people who are well-versed in this. And if we don't know the answers, we go to voting rights organizations here in the state. But those, it's so interesting. The first article that we published on absentee voting, I think had 30,000 views in just 48 hours. And we didn't boost the post. We didn't pay any kind of advertising on it. But people were so hungry for clean, clear information because it's so messy that we were stunned. We were just like, whoa, that tells you a lot and why we need to continue doing this. So in terms of the political leanings, I'm not so sure that it's about the leaning as it is about whether people know what they need to do to be able to vote. And a lot of folks just do not know basic civics. We started making phone calls after the presidential election to let people know that we had this runoff. And more than once, we heard, well, I just voted. Well, there's a runoff. There are two Senate races and a public service commission race that are in contention. And so we need for you to go back to the polls in January. And I'm like, oh, okay. So they don't know. They don't know. Well, let's talk about those Senate races because they're so incredibly important You have not one, but two. It's sort of like, how did this even happen? It's incredibly exciting. I would love to hear what you're doing about that. I mean, traditionally, runoffs are about getting out the vote. Are you still trying to win hearts and minds, or do you feel like everyone knows how they're voting and you're just trying to get them to show up? 
I think we're just trying to get them to show up. The Democratic Party, all of the voting rights organizations and nonprofits who work in the political space here are doing an enormous job trying to turn out their constituents. So those organizations who represent Latinx voters or AAPI voters, Black voters, are also working alongside any other efforts that may be going on to turn those constituents out. Again, what we do is we work in areas where there may be gaps. So our group is planning on working in and has been working in areas where traditional campaigns don't tend to go and to talk with those folks. And while we're not doing much in the terms of door knocking, we're doing literature drops, we've written personal letters to take to some of the voters in our own neighborhoods that we can see vote, just trying all kinds of tactics to turn out the vote. It's exciting. I think we were just as shocked as everyone else that we were in this position. We also have the statewide public service commission race. Right. I want to hear about that. We feel like that is an opportunity for us to lift up those Senate races, actually, because the public service commission race has a direct effect on people's pocketbooks. Georgia Power has the public service commission in their pocket, and it has been just astonishing to watch the PSC just give them whatever they want. It's in November, December of last year, Georgia Power asked for a fee that would go on top of your bill. No matter how little or how much electricity you use, you pay this fee. And it starts, I think, at $17 a month. And over the next three years, it'll go up to $25 a month. And so it doesn't matter how little you use, you're going to pay that fee. Oh, so are you helping educate people on that race? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And how do you do that? Are you doing calls as well? I'm sure you're doing phone banking in addition yes. to your so we're doing literature calls, drop. And we circulated a letter that said, look at the Public Service Commission. Many people don't know you can vote for that. And we've had people, before the pandemic, we'd started working on that anyway. And when we knocked on people's doors, even in neighborhoods that were well-to-do, when we told people about that, they were just like, wait, what? (laughs) What? I wondered why my electric bill was so high. (laughs) That's really unbelievable. So the candidate there is Daniel Blackman, right? That's correct. And that's in a runoff as well? Yes. Okay. Because he, in Georgia, you have to get 50% of the vote to win. 50 plus one, I believe, yes. Okay. So tell us the key dates for this, for the runoff. So early voting begins on December 14th and runs Today is December 11th. So is that Monday? Yes. So next Monday begins. And then the election day is January 5th. And then, of course, there's mail-in voting. Absolutely. Absolutely ballots. And people can still request those, right? People can still request. We recommend not requesting any later than maybe the day before Christmas, just to make sure that those ballots are received in the mail. And of course, there's been a mail slowdown. So 
that's a concern. So you talked about Georgia having this history of voter suppression. I just read about this this issue in Cobb County where they eliminated six out of the 11 early voting sites that they had in the general elections. There were only five. And then people made such an uproar that they added two more. And I understand that some of the sites that were eliminated were in primarily African-American neighborhoods. What other shenanigans are you seeing? Anything else, anything like that, or just carryovers from the general election? So Black Voters Matter just filed a lawsuit against the Secretary of State for a purge that happened before the election. I think there are 200,000 voters affected by that. They're not supposed to purge voters that close to an election. So that will be interesting. And that 200,000 number is interesting because of all of those down-ballot races that we lost. Because we kept sitting here thinking, why did we lose all of those races? Because those candidates ran really good races. They had good financing. Was it just the attack ads? And so when I read that yesterday, I was like, well, there's our race right there. Right. Those races which can turn on a really small number of votes. That's right. On several races, we lost those districts, maybe between 300 and 500 votes. So it doesn't take much purging for that to happen. And if you go to the poll and your name isn't there, you can cast a provisional ballot. But then there's such a short turnaround to cure that ballot that your vote may not be counted then. Even if your voter registration status has been returned, your vote may not have counted. So what can we do, people who are out of state? Is there anything we can do to help you guys? If you go to mobilize.us and look for Georgia events, there will be texting and phone calling that people can participate in there. Donating to the campaigns is huge. And I know that people always say, well, just donate. Well, there's a really good reason here for this. And it has to do with the amount of dark money that is coming into the state that we could possibly never match. It's amazing to see just how much money is coming in here. So when the campaigns have the funding that they need to fight with that, they can buy more ads on TV, on the radio, print ads, etc., and take up space that the Republicans might normally have. Had we been a little better funded earlier, we could have had more of that space, for example, at a better price. But now it's so outrageously expensive because everybody's vying for that time that it's going to take more money to do that. When you are also amplifying good, solid messages. So if you are on Twitter or Facebook, make sure that the information that you are amplifying is good information from trusted sources on the ground. So Fair Fight, New Georgia Project, Indivisible, Black Voters Matter, People's Agenda, Common Cause, ACLU, any of those organizations that you might have heard of, they think very carefully about the messaging they put out. And it's really important. So, for example, we have absentee ballots. We don't have vote by mail. 
So it's really important to use the correct terminology because it confuses people. And now people are so paranoid that they hear something, vote by mail, wait, I thought we just had absentee. So it really catches them up short and you don't want to confuse people. That's really important. The other message that we really want to get further out is we won. We won this presidential race and we can do it again. So to encourage voters to get out and vote, but not in that anxiety ridden way, but a celebratory way, because it's really something to celebrate. So are you allowing yourself to feel optimistic at all about these runoffs? Or are you just kind of like not even going there? (laughs) I think that I am cautiously optimistic, I would say. We still have plenty of work to do over the next few weeks. I'm confident that we can do that work. Our partners and our members are ready to go whenever we have a canvas or a lit drop set up. We have 15 to 20 people show up every Saturday and Sunday morning. For me, that's encouragement that people are still that involved. And I'm just deeply grateful. So let's talk about the future for Indivisible Georgia 4. What do you see going forward? What opportunities and what challenges? Well, I think we have several paths that are available to us. One of the things that we want to do is to do more in terms of civic education. So in the spring, one of our members, Sharon Williams, who's taught civic engagement courses before, is setting up a little citizens institute, if you will, in Clarkston, working with the mayor there, to have some folks come, and it'll probably be outdoors, but that's fine, to talk about how to engage local government. A lot of people don't really know what that is. One of our goals also is maybe to start a website that we're going to call Why Should I Care? Because we heard that at the door in 2018. And so the Public Service Commission is a really good example of that. So we want to interview elected officials and find out what their job really is. And what is their job that people think it is that it's not? (laughs) Because I see a lot of that on Facebook. They'll say, well, so-and-so needs to do their job. Well, what, what do you think their job is? And what they think their job is is nothing like what their job really is. So there's that kind of engagement we'd like to do. In January, the legislature comes back in session. It is a redistricting year, and so we have some challenges there. We also will have to defend voting rights again and again and again. So we know that is coming. So you guys have big plans. You're not going to slow down. No, we're not. (laughs) So last question. What are you proudest of in your work with Indivisible, and what's been most rewarding to you over these last four years? I think that when I look at the landscape and see how far we've come, as we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, where we started and where we've come are just light years, really, that we have been able to keep it going is a miracle. I mean, I've done organizing before, and it doesn't always happen like this. 
And I think what I'm most proud of are our members who just continue to show up. I mean, every once in a while I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to put this call out there and we'll see what happens. And then they all show up. That's so inspiring to me. And what keeps me going is that I'm like, well, maybe I'll pull back a little bit and then I'll get a phone call. And they're like, well, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> okay. So good. Good. So people are still engaged. When I ask people if they're going to be around, they're like, yes, absolutely. I think it's become a way of life for a lot of people. It has. I think what we have to do, though, is we have to find a way of continuing to do this work without being quite so all consuming. <laughs> I think we'll get a break. We're going to get a break coming up because so. <laughs> everyone was very geared up for this election. And now we have a little bit of quiet time. Well, Martha Shockey, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for the countless hours you've put into defending our democracy. I mean, we're all the beneficiaries of what you're doing in Georgia. Well, thank you, Nancy. It was good to be here. Good to meet you. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.